part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You may be seated this morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be back in Mark. And Have you ever heard the phrase, desperate people do desperate things? Have you found that to be true in your life? <laughs> Maybe in your own personal life. You know, it's amazing that when we look at uh, desperate times, sometimes we see courage come out and people do courageous things. I mean, you hear stories of, of people that jumped over a 12-foot fence. I, I've heard stories before that in a desperate time, somebody picked up a, an end of a, a, an automobile because their child was underneath that. I mean, desperate, crazy things. And other times we see people kind of um, lose sensibility during desperate times. This morning we're going to look at the lives of two people. Um, as Mark often does, he, he describes not just one story, but he oftentimes takes two different stories and on purpose he, he intertwines them together. And that's what we find today in the latter part of Mark chapter 5. Uh, scholars call that a Markian sandwich <laughs> where because it's one of those things that he does oftentimes. He takes two different things, but always with the purpose of trying to teach one singular truth. And this morning we have a sandwich. Two stories involving two people that could not be more different in life, more different in their social setting, more different from their background, and yet there is a prevailing commonness that, that brings them together, a commonality, and that is that they find themselves desperate. Uh, you know, and yet even in that commonality of desperation, we see that uh, uh, their desperation comes in two entirely different forms. Uh, you may have heard this story. In fact, uh, I preached a, a form of this story probably about four years ago. We were looking at seven lives, and we did a series on seven lives, and this is one of the ones that we, we looked at because it's just one of my favorite stories. But now that we go back through Mark, I don't want to skip over it just because we somewhat covered it four years ago, because I want us to look at it in the timeline of the ministry of Christ. But what we see is two people. Her story happens to be a him and a her. Her story is that uh, she has been slowly uh, dying for 12 years, a woman with an issue of blood. We're never told exactly what that is. We're just told that it's an issue of blood. But she's been to every doctor. She's seen everybody that she can, and nobody is able to give her help. And so in a way, she's been slowly dying and not getting help and become desperate over these 12 years. His story is a little bit different. His comes on not over a 12-year uh, kind of time period, but suddenly like a tsunami that came up and all of a sudden there's this huge wave because he finds out that his 12-year-old daughter is deathly sick. Now you might have already noticed 12 and 12. Hers is an issue of blood for 12 years. Uh, hers, his is a 12-year-old daughter. The, the number 12 is really an important number in the Bible. It always shows God's government. It shows his order and his purpose. 12 tribes, 12 disciples. We see that number 12 throughout the Bible, and it always is talking about God's sovereignty, his order, his government, his, his just having purpose in things. And I don't think it's by any chance that it, she happens to have had this issue of blood for 12 years, and his daughter happens to be 12 years old. God is using, even in that number, not a coincidence, but showing that he is totally in authority over these things. This issue of blood that this woman has had, it has left her frustrated. Um, it has left her penniless. 
The Bible says that she is broke. She has spent every available cent, everything that she has, to try to find a cure. I'm sure she went the, the routine way to the doctors of the day. I'm sure that there's been times that she has actually gone to the absurd. You know, when you get desperate and the, the normal has not helped you, have you ever wanted to venture off a little bit? Have you ever said, well, you know, I saw this on the internet. <laughs> and all of a sudden you try that because you're in a point of desperation. And all the normal things didn't work. I mean, I mean there were some really strange fairy tales and thoughts back in that day. You can only imagine that even though they had some science, they didn't have a science developed like we were. And so she had tried all these things and she's still sick. And so she's frustrated. She's hopeless and she's penniless. And and here's the factor that really, really is important for us to understand. She is lonely and abandoned. You see, the religious laws of those days said that if you have an issue of blood, if you go back to Leviticus, there's there's really strict writing in this, that, okay, because of this, you are considered ceremonially unclean. You, you can't come to temple. Until all this gets fixed, you can't come to temple. And so for 12 years, she has been a spiritual outsider. She's been separated even from her family. She's been separated from those that, that maybe normally we would turn to in desperate times. And like a great wall that has been built upon her, brick by brick, pound by pound, now this heavy weight of her condition is there 12 years later. The man, again, totally different story. This man is not socially outcast and spiritually outcast. He's actually a leader within the temple. Uh, we don't know, in, in those days, that could have been somebody who did the assignments of reading. It could have been a pastor type. But he has spiritual authority. He's well-connected. And yet, his desperation comes in a moment. All of a sudden, his 12-year-old daughter is fighting for her life. And in that case, this urgent, this has not been pounding away for 12 years, it comes like this huge wave upon him. Uh, look at verse 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. That is, he goes to Jesus, he's heard, and yet, more than likely, as one of the temple leaders, the rulers of the synagogue, he's probably, he may not be a Pharisee, but he's at least connected and influenced by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, we know, were not exactly the biggest fans of Jesus in his ministry. Desperate people do desperate things. And all of a sudden, that form and that fashion that maybe we're going, you know, I'm a synagogue ruler. You know, I don't know about this Jesus. I'm kind of suspect here. Desperate people do desperate things. And he comes to Jesus, verse 23, and he implored him earnestly. The Greek there means he implored and kept on imploring. It's it's used in in a form that means that it wasn't just that he made this one plea. He continues to make this plea before the Lord. And he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. He's got one request. And it's not a selfish one. It is very unselfish. My, my daughter is dying, and I don't have a lot of faith, but I have enough faith to know that what I've heard, you can make a difference. And so he comes, not caring what people see. Isn't this a synagogue ruler? Why, why is he bowing down? Why is he giving this place of authority to Jesus in his life? He doesn't care, because desperate people do desperate things. And all of a sudden, you know, all that pride or all that reasoning in your head... When you get desperate, 
You're willing to throw that out the door if you think that it might in some way make a difference in your life. Isn't it amazing that in desperate times, things go from being very complex to very simple? I mean, if all of a sudden you're drowning, life is really simple. I need to get back above the water to breathe again. I mean, it really gets really simple. All of a sudden you don't care, you know... I wonder if I should get a new car next year. I wonder what's going to happen here. I, I wonder if we're going to get that tax break. All the different complexity of life. When you're drowning, there's one thought on your mind. I need to get to the surface so I can get air and breathe and live. And that's where this synagogue ruler is. And all the complexities of the politics and the religion of the day and the Pharisees thought this about Jesus and all that, all of that didn't matter. His 12-year-old daughter is dying and he is desperate to find a, a help for her. And so all decorum, all pride vanishes in that moment of desperation. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and he begs for mercy. And Jesus responds to Jairus' request. Look at verse 24. And he went, that is, Jesus went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, now remember, this is after they've, remember the uh, gathering demoniac that we saw a couple weeks ago? He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in, in the first verse, it says that he's come back. And so he's now back really where most of his ministry took place. And this is more of the Jewish believers. And these are people that are at least open a little bit to the ministry of Christ. And the crowds just throng about Jesus. And, and here Jesus begins to go with him. The crowds following. And then look what happens in verse 25 and 26. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had. And was no better, but rather grew worse. Desperate situation. As desperate as Jairus in many ways, even though hers had been slowly building for a 12-year period, his comes in an instant, and she makes her way through the crowd to do something that maybe seems a little bit crazy. Maybe if I can just touch Jesus. Now, where did she get this thought that maybe if she could just touch Jesus or even the hem of his garment, that somehow there would be this miraculous thing? We don't know if she was a spiritual person and it came from a spiritual faith and things. We don't know if it came from some kind of fairy tale that, oh, this is a very special person. And maybe if you even get close to him, if you're able to touch him, that somehow you're going to be transformed. We don't really know a lot about her spiritual condition as much as we do her desperate condition. Let me ask you something. When you're desperate and you need Jesus, does the backstory really matter? Does the backstory really matter that you come from the most religious home and that you have a spiritual pedigree or that you don't even know what the first book of the Bible is? You just know that you're desperate and you need help and somebody told you that Jesus could help you and that he could be your savior. We don't know her spiritual condition. We do know that more than likely she probably was Jewish and ascribed to those laws. We know that Leviticus 15 verses 25 through 27 had probably been repeated to her over and over again. No, you can't come to temple. No, you can't be with these people. We know all the restrictions that the law had placed upon her. And in this isolation, we don't know if she'd even been touched in the last 12 years. And yet desperate people do desperate things. 
And she knows that there's a penalty if, if you are scorned and if you're the, not supposed to be touching in, in, in public. Jewish people had a law about that, and you just don't go and make your way. If you're a leper, you don't go in the midst of the crowd, and yet she makes her way through the crowd. Considered spiritually unclean, but so desperate that she does something that's a little bit crazy. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so she risked everything. Her faith may be immature, as it could be. We don't know. But she acted upon that which she put her faith in. She makes her way through Christ. And look what happens in verse 29. It says, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. I'm always amazed at that. I've read this story over and over and again. And how do you know? She knew. I believe that God made that impression upon her. I mean, there's been times in my life that I didn't need a doctor to confirm something. I didn't need a pastor to confirm something. I just knew because God had confirmed that in my heart. Does that make sense to you? And she knew that immediately the flow of blood had dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, there's a lot of uh, different thoughts on, did Jesus really not know? Is he really kind of going, who did that? Or was there purpose behind that? And and that's a whole other sermon. I just know that 12 years of hopelessness and pain and disappointment and loneliness were gone. And in those desperate actions, now they were going to become public. Verse 31 and 32, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd. Jesus, about 10,000 people probably just did you. I'm kind of uh, exaggerating a little bit, but Jesus, how, how can you say who touched me? There's a lot of people here that just touched you. You're in the midst of a thronging crowd. And yet you ask who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. In one way, that's a scary verse. In another way, isn't that one of the most beautiful verses? That in fear and trembling, she comes to the one that just miraculously did what nobody else could do. And now she wonders, okay, I broke Levitical law. I, I did this. Is it, you know, what's the recompense for this? What, what, what is going to happen to me? Folks, desperate plans are not always logical. They are daring. By the very name, they're desperate. And the woman now faces the reality of her daring exploits. And Jewish law was very clear. And yet, look at verse 34. Look at the response of our Savior to this woman. And Jesus said to her daughter, the only time that we have recorded in the word where, where Jesus calls a female, calls somebody a daughter. And I'm thinking that's a little bit intimate. <laughs> I'm thinking this is about as intimate as you could be in, in the sense of just closeness. Please do not hear that in any form or way, sexual intimacy. Un- unfortunately, when we hear that word intimate in our society, we, we kind of lean that way a little bit. No, the farthest thing from it, what we see here is the intimacy of, of a holy God 
reaching upon his creation. And Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Instead of being scolded and instead of being reminded of the Levitical law, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? He goes immediately and calms her fear. Instead of just a physical healing, that's why she came. But the words there that are implied was that that was more than just a physical healing, but there was actually a spiritual healing that took place too. You can say, okay, did she become a Christian? We're not really sure of all the different things of salvation in that time of ministry, but by every appearance, not only is there a physical healing, but but she having placed her faith and trust in Christ, that she does what what we would be say became a Christian. And again, I'm kind of open to that point. I just know that God took care of what needed to be taken care of and went far above her physical present need and gave her something that answered her eternal need. And just as we get caught up in the story of this woman's transformation, uh, we remind ourselves that Mark is telling a story about two people. And some people come from Jairus' house where his a sickly daughter on the point of death. Something tragic has happened. Look at verse 35. And while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Hey, Jairus, brother, you did everything you could. In your desperation, you ran as fast as you could. In your desperation, you went to a source that, that humbled you, that, that, that you had to kind of rip off all form and fashion of, of religious structure in that day, and you fell at his feet. But, but brother, I'm sorry to tell you, but your daughter's died. You'd place all your hope in getting there in time, and when we find out that it was too late. Now, if I'm Jay Iris, I'm just being honest, I'm a little mad. Because do you remember what it said earlier in the verses? That they were on the way to Jay Iris' house. And I don't know if this whole intermission thing that happened with the woman was five minutes. I don't know if it was 20 minutes. I don't know if it was an hour. I don't know how much this distraction, what seems like a distraction to the plan that Jairus and Jesus had developed. Hey, we're going to go to your house and we're going to make sure that your, your daughter is healed. I, I don't know. But when I hear that my daughter has died, <laughs> my desperation goes maybe with a little bit of anger. Have you ever been there before? That in desperate moments when God didn't do something exactly as you kind of thought, that there's almost, it's not a righteous anger, but it's very much a real anger of, God, I'm just kind of confused. I was here first. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue. Now, it doesn't say that he looked in the eyes, but can you imagine Jesus just making this proclamation without looking intently into the eyes of Jairus? Man, he looks into this father's eyes. He looks into the intimacy. Sovereign God looking down upon this desperate man. And, and he says, do not fear, only believe. 
The intimacy, daughter, your faith has made you well. The intimacy of creator God looking into the eyes of his creation. Do not fear, only believe. Is this not amazing? That in the most desperate times of our lives, his glance is there, folks. You can look into the Father's eyes because he will look into your eyes. He will look into your life. He's not this distant God that somehow, well, I hope my prayer got there. No, he's a father who knows and loves his children. And with the intimacy, I mean, it doesn't say that. So please, if I'm wrong, hold me accountable. But I cannot believe that he would say, do not fear, only believe. And he's looking off to the left or the right. Verse 39 and 40. They go back and, and the mourners, and I don't know if you know much about Middle Eastern mourners. Uh, they actually, some of them are authentic, others get paid. And the more money you had, the more you could buy mourners. And the job of mourning was not a quiet one. It was one to be elaborate. It was to be all over the place. It was to scream and cry out loudly. And the more, better you were at it, probably the more money you got paid to, to do that. And, and so all these people are mourning, some authentically, some of them probably paid because this is a man of position. And so they're mourning. Verse 39, and when he had entered, he, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Uh, Jesus, the daughter just died. And look at Jesus' response. No, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus, we, we may not be medical doctors, and you know, back then they didn't hook you up to an EKG or something like that. But they go, look, we know when somebody's dead, and and unfortunately, we're, we're not happy about it. This this young twelve year old girl, she's died. <laughs> Don't play with Jairus's and, and the moms and the family's emotions like that. Verse forty one and forty two. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately. Remember Mark's favorite word? Immediately. The girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately, immediately overcome with amazement. Desperate people do desperate things. And as dissimilar as these people were, they, they were maybe in so many ways opposites. One connected, one disconnect. One in the mix, one totally out of the mix. One had been building for a 12-year period. The other one, uh, an instant tsunami on his life. Stories so different, and yet, one commonality. These people were desperate, and their need was desperate. And they both needed, amazingly, out of their differences, the same thing. They needed the transforming power of Jesus Christ. What a hope for us in our desperate times. What a hope for you this morning, for me this morning, if something has been building for 12 years, and brick by brick by brick you feel the heaviness on your shoulders. What a hope for us today. That yesterday, not a care in the world. And we woke up this morning and like a ton of bricks, instantly it was pushed upon us that there's something that makes us desperate. 
that the answer is the Son. We just run to Jesus. We just run to Jesus. And by his power, and by his transforming grace, he does the miraculous. Sometimes we see stories like this, and we begin to say, man, those were miraculous stories. Guys, if you understand our sinfulness and God's holiness, if you're a Christian this morning, you're a miracle. You're a miracle. You don't have to be that wayward one. You don't have to be this one. You don't have to say, well, you know, it wasn't until 78 that I came to know Christ. No, you could have come to know Christ at five or six years of age. You are a miracle. Because you went from the depravity of sin into being a child of the well, living God. 61 years, probably and one of the oldest ones. the next weeks, you're going to hear some of those stories. And this one um, where uh, I'm I just was so blessed that this week you come and share with us your story of transformation. And, 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 and she told me this morning, I won't say the, the number of years. She said, how do I do a story of transformation with blank number of years in three or four minutes? So, <laughs> and so I 61 I years, but she's going to wrap it up in three minutes. Please bless us this morning. Well, I found out I really wasn't. And we moved from West Virginia to Florida when I was nine. And I was so angry because I went to this hot, sweaty place. And how dare my parents do this to me because I'm in charge. And I was just so angry. But the Lord had to show me that I was desperately needed for him. And I needed a new mindset. I needed to be transformed. And so at nine... Not knowing everything about the Lord, but I knew I needed him. And that was my beginning of transformation. Then we'll skip a few years, and I got married. And I thought, oh, finally, I'm going to be in charge. You know? But I married a man who was the oldest of his family, too. So he thought he was in charge. And fortunately, we both were sinners, but we were sinners saved by grace. So I'm going, okay, this is great. Marriage is all about love. But... In the midst of that, we were married in November. In um, May, he went to Vietnam. He was wounded in, in June of that year. Came home, spent nine months at Walter Reed. Just saying that real quickly. After all of that, then he came home. And he was not the same man that I married. He was so different. His vocal cords were severed. He didn't even talk like the same man. And that's when the Lord had to transform my mind and make me realize that marriage was not about being in love, but marriage was about covenant, covenant relationship, and that love was an act of my will. It was not a feeling. Go forward a few years. We we decided to add sinners to our household, too. We had two. My daughter's here, so she can tell you that Life was not perfect. I'm just sharing how the Lord transformed me. And I thought, okay, I'm in charge. I can make sure that my kids behave. They will go, you know, have a good education. They'll, you know, I'm going to provide all these things for them. But then they turned to. And I found out that I was not in charge. And also the Lord said, no, that's not the most important thing. This is how he transformed my mind. The most important thing for me to do as a parent is to tell them that they need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that they needed to go to church. Not that they needed to make good grades. All things, these things are good, but the most important thing is for me 
to tell them that they need the Lord, a personal relationship, because just because I go to church, they're not going to get to heaven because of me. Through the years, and I said, Lord, how am I going to do this? And in Deuteronomy, it tells us, talk about it with your children, of what you've seen, what you know I've done in your life. When you're walking on the way, when you're laying down, when you're just going about your every day, they need to know what the Lord is doing in your life. But the most transforming moment in my life came when I realized that I had the Holy Spirit in me and I could know that the Lord is talking to me, that I could take his scripture not have to have a book, not have to have a quarterly. I could just read his scripture and he would talk to me. He would, he loved me that much that he could transform me just by his very word through the power of the Holy Spirit. That opened a whole new mindset for me. I could look up anything. I could ask any questions. I could have any doubts. And I, he would tell me. I didn't, the Lord was speaking to me, so I'm changing it a little bit as you were speaking. I do have to share about, because you know these characters in the Bible, they are real people. And the little girl just reminded me of my brother. And this was one transforming moment when I was 11. My brother was diagnosed with a kidney disease that he was dying We had prayer at our church. My mom and dad went to the hospital the next day, and the doctor said, we've made a mistake. We didn't diagnose this correctly. He does have a kidney disease, but he's going to be healed. He's going to recover from this. Transform. God is really the ultimate healer, the ultimate one. I could go on and on and on having, having, as you know, See that I am a sinner, to how much I needed to be transformed. But I'm going to leave you with this. This is from an old gospel song. The Lord just brought it to my mind. I haven't sung it for years, but this is one I want to leave you with. Did I mention that I love him, how I worship and adore him? When I can see no way, he makes a way. And did I mention he's been faithful To every promise he ever made me, I love him. And that's all I have to say. Let's pray together this morning, Father. Let's pray together this morning. Father, there's something about hearing testimonies, Father, hearing just the power of what you do in our real life outside of the four walls of a church, Father. How we move from religious practice to a true relationship with you, our creator and our God. And so, Father, I thank you. And Father, Miss Vicky could have gone on. Father, she could have gone on from hours without notes, just from her heart, of all the things that she has seen 
you do in our life. So, Father, thank you for that, that we can give testimony. Help us to make much of you this next week. Father, that as we would give our testimony of transformation, of how you have taken us from, from our sinfulness, Father, and, and made us a very child of your kingdom, Father, help us to make much of that this week. Father, as we go out this morning, Father, we're going to sing this, this song about the blessing and just your blessing upon our lives and how we have the opportunity, Father, in, in our prayers, Father, that we just want to see this this blessing to go on from generation to generation to generation. And Father, I think this song means more to me now as a granddad to, to want this spiritual heritage for my kids and my grandchildren and their children and their children. So Father, I pray this morning as we sing this song that, uh, that Father, that truly we would just uh, unite together as this body of Christ that we call Cornerstone, Father. as a, a family of people that just walking, trying to walk in faith. Father, that we would just sing this to you and Father, that we would just make this uh, in our desperation, Father. Ask for you to guide us this very week. Protect us. Thank you for saving us. We pray all this in the one that made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.